What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Edward Woodford is the co-founder of SeedCX, an institutional trading platform that received approval from the CFTC as a swap execution facility in August 2016. In this conversation, we discuss crypto financial products, emerging markets, how institutional investors think, and why crypto is such an interesting problem for anyone building regulated exchanges. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only blockchain event and media production company I trust. If you're an investor, lawyer, accountant, or entrepreneur, and want to attend exclusive events and dinners, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you won't be disappointed. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Before we get into this episode, I want to give a quick shout out to one of our sponsors. Saluna is a blockchain computing company powered by its own renewable energy. The team is planning to build a 900 megawatt facility on top of a 37,000 acre location, one of the best wind sites in the world in southern Morocco. You'll hear more from them later in this episode, but I'd love if you could go check out their website. You can find them at saluna.io. All right, guys, I'm here with Edward. Uh, Thank you so much for coming. No, thanks for having me. Awesome. Um, all right, so let's start with uh, your background because mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a little different, um, and then we can start getting into you know how you found crypto and, and go from there. Yeah, no. Um, so uh, as you can probably tell by the accent, uh, originally from the UK, um, came to the US. Uh, I thought you were from New York. Yeah, I, I, I know. Easily confused. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was in a. Uh, so I was came to the came to the US uh, for grad school. Um, and then kind of became really interested in kind of emerging markets. And I, I saw this opportunity, um, along with my co-founder, Brian, um, that people were very reluctant to enter new markets where there were, for whatever reason, some sense of um, controversy. Um, there was some sense of um, a perception of risk. Um, and p- despite the fact that there was this um, mass, these, there were these massive potential markets that could grow really, really quickly. And there was this visceral reaction that people had towards these markets. And we said, hey, we've actually got an opportunity here. We can research these things, get a real competitive edge and grow. And so we started off very much in the agricultural space. And, and just to be clear, yeah. you're talking about uh, retail investors who want, they're looking for investment opportunities, you know, looking for yield. Uh, and you guys saw an opportunity for higher yielding products in emerging markets and, and uh, products, but uh, maybe these people were a little gun shy because of exchanges or, or whatever that might not exist or, or weren't Yeah, we, we, we really, the, the, the exchanges were the really, the groups that we saw as the risk averse groups. We want to start off in the institutional space um, and then potentially move forward into the retail space. But okay. it was not only the potential for, for different yields, but it was also the correlations uh, that these products exhibited were potentially quite interesting, but also you were providing a fundamental hedging product so that people in these emerging industries could actually hedge risk and potentially increase the growth of these um, industries. 
Um, so where did, where did you, when you guys saw that there was opportunity to go into kind of newer markets, newer products, mm-hmm. and create exchange infrastructure, yeah. where did you guys kind of look first? What was interesting? Yeah, I mean, uh, so we looked off at the industrial hemp space, organics, avocados, um, limes. Um, we, we were fortunate that uh, MIT gave us uh, more credibility than potentially we were due. Um, and we, we went forward, got uh, regulated um, by the CFTC as a swap execution facility. Um, and then about two years ago, we started to see that um, many of the same features that we were interested in in other markets were really strongly exhibited in digital assets. And so we moved full force into the digital asset space, um, becoming increasingly regulated um, to offer both spot um, and derivatives. Um, in this market, um, principally uh, for institutional um, investors. So, okay, so, so let's back up with, um, walk us through the process of, you know, you want to create an exchange mm-hmm. for avocados, limes, mm-hmm. and hemp, right? Yeah. And you show up to the CFTC mm-hmm. to get the regulatory, um, you know, approvals. Mm-hmm. What is that process like? And, and, you know, what are kind of the obstacles that you face and you've mm-hmm. got to kind of get through? Uh, and then we can compare it to the digital asset space. Well, let's start with kind of the non-digital assets first. Yeah, so there's kind of two parts to, to, to that question. One is the regulatory entity on which um, derivative products can be traded on. Um, and those entities are typically um, asset agnostic. Um, so the first piece is to get that regulatory entity. Um, the second piece is then, once you have that regulatory entity, um, getting the products uh, approved or um, certified, um, it's a process called self-certification um, with the CFTC. And what they're really looking at when, when they're doing that kind of process on the product side is making sure that those markets cannot be manipulated, um, that the product construct reflects the actual spot market. Um, and they're trying to make basically make sure that there's efficient markets um, and there's not being manipulation. The actual entity, the swap execution facility license that we have, um, it, it's an extended process. Um, it, it, it takes quite a long time. Um, fundamentally, there's 15 core principles. The CFTC versus the SEC is more of a principle-based um, organization. So they lay out these principles, and you have to show how you meet those principles in, in a number of ways that you do them. So, for example, your rule book, your compliance manual, uh, your surveillance manual, all of these kind of processes to show them that you fundamentally acknowledge these um, principles and you will um, enact them because in a sense you are a self-regulatory um, body um, and so they're giving that they're entrusting that in you so they're not even saying you have to have a rule book what they're saying is there's a principle and then the way that you show you have met that principle or, or kind of the spirit of the principle is you have a rule book um, to some degree, um, they, they do set out required exhibits, and one of those exhibits is a rule book. Okay. But it's how do you convey those principles into that rule book? Got it. Um, increasingly, there's um, there's standards that the regulators would like you to to, to use, um, but it's a much more principles based organization than the um, SEC, which is obviously the securities uh, regulator. Got it. No, super interesting. Okay, and then um, as you guys were kind of going down the path of the avocados, limes, hemp, etc. Why not actually launch a product uh, and, and kind of go after those markets? What changed? Yeah, so we, we worked on getting those products um, basically self-certified, which means as, as a process, and this is a term that's been much more commonly used recently with the, with the derivative products that were just launched in digital assets. There was this talk of self-certification and what it means and whether it should be changed. 
Um, but what self-certification means is essentially that you file a draft product with the CFTC. Um, they look at it, they analyze it, um, the economists um, review the work that you've done, um, looking at things like deliverable supply. Um, and at that point, um, once they've, you've answered their questions, they essentially give you the green light to self-certify, but there's no formal um, approval. Um, our fundamental thesis on a lot of those products was that those markets would grow by the time that we had the products um, ready. Um, and those products just were not, the markets just had not grown to the size that we had anticipated. Um, and so we took a step back and we said, okay, where do we focus our time? We have interesting regulatory assets. We are very well banked. Um, and we have good technology. And let's look at the markets again. Let's look at the fundamental thesis that we had, which was around what we called seed markets, i.e. ones that were just about to flourish. And digital assets really looked like it had all the signals. Um, and bear in mind, this was you know almost two years ago now. Um, it wasn't what it was today, yeah. um, where it's like, yes, what, what, correct. But it, it, it's kind of with digital assets, the, the pillars fell or the dominoes of kind of growth fell and those other markets didn't. And we always knew that was going to be the case. But if you look at exchanges, if you look at sophisticated um, exchanges and other asset classes, exchange volume is concentrated in a small number of products. Yep. So you really got to believe that that product, well, you're going to have one product that will actually, what we term a Uber product in the same way that a VC wants it, needs an Uber in its portfolio to give you the returns. It's the same in exchanges. You need products that will give you those Uber returns. And so we went full, full fledged into the digital asset space. Got it. Okay. And, and so um, as you've done that, let, let's pause for a second. And I want to go over uh, some terminology that gets thrown a lot around a lot, both digital assets and um, in the exchange world. Yeah. Uh, don't worry about the dictionary definition, but just give me kind of in practice, you know, what do these terms mean? Because um, I think a lot of people hear them, you know, they nod their head and say, yep, uh, exactly. I know exactly what that means. And they yeah. have zero clue. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and frankly, they're too lazy to go Google it. <laughs> um, so so you're going to uh, you're going to be Google for us for a second. OK, um, I'll, try, I'll, I'll try my best. Yeah, yeah of course. So uh, spot trading. Um, so I would say spot trading is here and now. Um, so as in I buy, you sell. And um, we actually at, get at the market rate, whatever yeah. the market is, right whatever now. the market price is yeah. right now. And then we do the exchange um, legally, the technical definition. And, and it's kind of um, not to get too much into the nuance, but it essentially means um, settlement in under 28 days. And this actually means something that digital asset space. Um, this is why if you look at all the, the manuals and the rule books of these other exchanges, they talk about settlement within 28 days because that is seen as the, the cutoff. But principally, spot market is here and now. I buy uh, a Bitcoin off of you um, at an agreed price, um, and I get the Bitcoin um, later today. Okay, so so the trade, it, a spot trade means we look at a price on an exchange right at this second, and I say, I'll buy at that price. You say, I'll sell at that price, and that's a spot trade. Now, settlement, mm -hmm. right? What does that mean? What, what, where is that playing? Yeah, so settlement, so there's two parts of a trade. There's uh, execution, um, matching and execution, and then the other part is settlement. So um, me and you, uh, we, we say, okay, we're gonna agree at price X. That's the match and execution. The settlement piece is, okay, um, the fiat and the digital assets actually move. So that's the settlement piece. So it's these two distinct parts. And in other markets, these two things are conducted by different groups. The exchange is different from the actual settlement entity. Yep. But what we've seen in digital assets is those two things are, are combined. 
principally because of the, the, the fact that other institutions that typically perform these functions um, don't don't um, exist in, in this space. But settlement is the movement of the digital assets in fiat to essentially settle or make whole the trade. Got it. So one is agreement right around price, assets, you know, currencies, et cetera. And then the settlement is the actual consummation of the, of the true physical trade of uh, the, the currency moving and, and the digital asset. Correct. Um, all right. So let's talk about uh, derivative trading. So spot trading is here and now. We're actually taking this in, in the individual asset and, and agreeing, and then we'll settle it in some period of time. Mm-hmm. Derivative trading is... Yeah, so derivative trading is somewhat forward dated. So uh, me and you, uh, we decide on a on, on a price um, at a forward dated point. So we could say, hey, let's enter into a forward contract in a month's time um, at X price. And so what will happen in a month's time is that the settlement will occur um, at that point. So we say, let, let's use a real example. So today, Bitcoin's trading at you know, $6,500. Yeah. We would say in 30 days, we are going to transact at $7,500, yes. right? And you're saying that you'll buy at $7,500, I'll sell at $7,500. If it goes up to $7,500, then that's good for one of us. And if it doesn't, then that's bad for one of us. Right? Exactly. You're, t- you're taking a position um, somewhat on the, on, on the future. Um, and this can also serve as a, as, as a, as a hedge product. Um, but hedging meaning um, that you are a natural user or, or, or of, of the assets and you want to protect the potential price risk that, that exists. So for example, hedges in the digital asset space actually includes, for example, miners. Um, they are essentially um, mining in the same way that a copper miner has copper risk. Um, but also we actually see um, hedges actually being um, actual other exchanges. Um, other exchanges take fees in um, digital assets, yet their costs typically are in fiat. Um, and they can project how much um, digital asset they will um, likely collect um, in the future. They can lock in that price, and so they can make better strategic decisions. And that's the fundamental purpose of hedging, is partly it is speculation um, for for certain groups, but the core purpose um, and the genesis of of, of this was was fundamental hedging. Got it. Okay, that that makes sense. Um, And then let's talk about uh, market surveillance. Right, so this is something that gets thrown in a lot by regulators and people mm-hmm. who are, um, you know, looking at all sorts of regulatory approvals. Uh, but again, I think it's a term that people don't really understand. Yeah, so market surveillance um, essentially is you're looking for um, poten- potential mistakes, or you're looking for um, bad actors. Um, and the way that market surveillance actually really works um, is you have these automated alerts. Um, so, for example, at CTX, we we have um, over thirty alerts. Um, and then what happens is, is that that triggers, just because it's a machine, triggers a lot of false positives. And then you have surveillance specialists who understand the markets, understand the actual players, and they're looking at things like wash trading. Are you trying to manipulate the price by essentially putting um, these trades through? Um, are mistakes being made? Do you need to assess if a mistake has been made? So for example, a fat finger. A fat finger essentially is, well, what it really means is, is basically you put in the wrong number by material amount because you have a fat finger, so you hit the number um, next to it. And so you have all of these automated uh, alerts and exchanges don't go into, those exchanges that do surveillance, um, like ourselves, we don't go into detail about the kind of alerts that we have um, because essentially you're trying to um, surveil the market and not give away exactly- tell them the secrets. Exactly, give away exactly <laughs> what you're monitoring. But the purpose fundamentally is to prevent um, manipulation 
of the price and to make sure that it is a fair and balanced playing field for everybody um, on the exchange. Got it. So really, market surveillance is like automated vigilance. Exactly. Right? That's yeah, the yeah. best way to put it. Got it. Okay. No, that makes sense. Uh, custody. Yeah. So custody is obviously something that people talk about a lot in this space, <laughs> um, to, say, to say the least. Um, probably you, you probably get uh, the, the, the word dropped um, every couple of um, hours. It, um, it's a word where we, sh- we should just start dropping in the middle of sentences, right? Where it doesn't even make <laughs> sense and people just nod their head. Yep. Uh-huh. Custody. Yeah, that's important. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, always, it's always the go-to question with, with kind of new, new digital assets. Uh, well, when you meet someone for the first time, it's kind of like that go-to. It's, it's not what's your job. It's, oh, so what do you think custody right now? Um, that's, that's the question. Um, so custody is really the holding of assets or fiat. Um, and that's kind of custody as we define with a small C. Um, so that's just the holding of it. Um, who, 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 who holds it? Um, there's this concept of um, qualified custodianship. Mm-hmm. And that makes, um, that's required for registered investment advisors who hold um, above, I believe, the numbers $125 million. Or there's, there's some threshold. And basically what the rules say is that if you um, are a registered investment advisor that meet these qualifications, you have to hold the assets at a qualified custodian. And a qualified custodian is a definition and it can cover a whole host of things, including broker dealers, banks, um, certain trusts, um, FCMs. Um, And so that's what a qualified custodian is. And often these terms are somewhat conflated, but... um, Custody is essentially how do you, what's the entity or how's the actual assets being held? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the qualified custodian piece is the actual legal entity. Those two pieces are important, but really, um, and it's kind of a lot when people talk about why custodianship is important is because if you are holding your assets at a place, you want to make sure that they really have balance sheet. And I think that's kind of one of the points that is often not discussed, which is, okay, we talk a lot about custodianship, about security of assets, which is super, super important. Um, We talk a little bit about the regulatory implications. But the reason that when we talk about big institutions coming into the space, it is they're also looking at balance sheet of these custodians, which is kind of ironic given the fact that this is a distributed um, system that we're saying, hey, I need to ho- hold my assets in a, in a place where there is actually centrali- centralization with a, with a huge balance sheet. I think that's a function of mindset that still exists and potentially will change, potentially won't. But people feel more comfortable holding or certain people still feel more comfortable holding them at a bank with big balance sheet rather than on a distributed ledger with, um, you know, or holding it themselves in cold storage. That is just a perception and, and, and mindset that exists amongst certain people. It may change, it may not, um, but that's essentially what custodianship is. You're going to love this. So I come up with these phrases randomly sometimes <laughs> uh, to, to remember concepts. And uh, this reminds me a lot of like the banks are too big to fail, mm-hmm. right? But the code is too secure to fail. Yeah. And so right now what we're doing on the custody side is we're looking for banks that are too big to fail. Mm-hmm. but we should actually start trusting the code more and understanding that if the code is written correctly, that's where the security actually is. Yeah, right? I mean, there's a lot of work that, I mean, uh, these these banks are probably, you know, some, some of them can, are very good at security. I mean, these are um, instrumental organizations. Um, if they get hacked, it has actually an impact on the entire economy. Yep. Whereas if in a, or if they just fail like in 2008. Yes, exactly. Um, so it's kind of this ironic, or maybe it's not ironic, but this kind of melding of two worlds. When we're talking about custodianship, um, it's it's this 
kind of maybe you want to term old school mentality mm -hmm. or just the mentality that exists, um, our innate sense of what it means to be secure, um, plus this kind of new digital asset that potentially doesn't need to fit into this rubric. But the reality is, is that that rubric has a lot of stickiness. Yeah, and look, it, it is, uh, as much as I joke around about you know the banks and everything, that there's an element of like cover your ass, mm -hmm. right? So if you're an institutional investor and uh, it goes along the saying of, um, you know, you don't get fired for going with IBM, mm -hmm. right? Same thing here, I think, is there are certain institutions that are really big, really well known, they've been around for a long time. And so if you go ahead and you use them for custody mm -hmm. and something happens, mm -hmm. right? It's a, oh, well, we had used X institution, right? Yeah. There's less blowback and, and kind of there's more um, understanding, I think, than if you say, oh, we used a Y institution. And by the way, the Y institution is a year old and has, you know, very little balance sheet. And nobody's mm -hmm. ever heard of them. Yeah. It's also if something does go wrong, um, the the perception is um, also that you can you, you, you can get your money. Yeah, there's recourse. There's recourse, right? Yep. Um, it's kind of just the, these organizations are so, so big that even if they held the entirety of the digital asset space, it would still be a fraction of their, of their actual um, underlying risk. Um, so Absolutely. Yeah. So, all right, let, let's talk about uh, CTX and, and tell me like, you know, one sentence, what are you guys doing today, right? So, so you were kind of prepared to go do avocados, limes, hemp, all this stuff, uh, saw digital assets as, hey, it has all the ingredients for a, you know, kind of nascent market that has the kind of breakout potential, made a bet on it about two years ago. Mm -hmm. It broke out, mm -hmm. right? And so mm -hmm. where are you guys today? Yeah, so we're ramping up to launch. We're launching in about a month's time. Um, and what we offer is an institutional platform for trading digital assets. Um, we're initially launching with um, Spot, um, and then um, subject to regulatory approval um, that we kind of discussed, um, we will be uh, launching uh, physically settled derivative products as, as well. Very cool. And so who would you say uh, is doing or is likely to do the same thing that mm -hmm. already exists, right? So when people think of um, what you just said, they, they try to make a comparison, right? Is it the Coinbase's of the world? Is it like a back uh, from the New York Stock Exchange ICE? Mm -hmm. uh, is it NASDAQ? Who, who do you kind of look at and say, you know, we're going to be doing very similar things in the future? Yeah, so obviously partly we think we can do it better. We, we, of course. we, we think um, you know, we have really strong institutional technology, um, such as um, you know, really strong fixed connectivity, um, physical uh, data centers, um, strong cybersecurity. Um, then from a compliance perspective, we, have a, we do things above and beyond regulatory requirements, such as uh, preventing our employees from trading digital assets. We also don't trade at all as a company. Um, against our clients, so we don't have a principal trading desk. Um, so these are kind of some of the, the differences, um, op really strong operational support. Our goal is to have a couple of hundred customers, not a couple of million, so a real high-touch experience for, for our customers. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of where we fit in this landscape, we kind of dovetail to two areas, and there's a benefit of, of combining them because of kind of capital efficiencies, but in a sense, the closest on the spot market is kind of a group like Gemini or GDAX um, or Coinbase Prime as they've rebranded it. And then on the other side is um, a LedgerX, a, a backed uh, CME kind of um, group. So we, we do both things. Um, so, yeah. Got it. No, makes sense. And, and so you've said previously that uh, your goal is to make crypto trading boring, yeah. right? What does that mean? Yeah, by, by boring, we mean basically not that the fundamental asset class is boring, but that the operational risk is as close to zero as it can be. It's, it's analogous to trading um, stocks or FX. And by boring, we mean that the stories that permeate um, 
kind of our, our mindsets are not things around hacks. They're not about insider trading on the exchanges. They're not about wash trades on exchanges. They're not about manipulation. They're not about these kinds of, they're not about going, exchanges going down for two days. They're not about exchanges um, basically telling multiple regulators, we don't care what you think. Mm -hmm. um, what, we're trying, what we're trying to do is reduce operational risk as close to zero. And I think that has had particular resonance, um, especially recently um, with groups that have been trading digital assets for some time. Because when returns were really abnormal, even if these operational risks existed, it still made some sense. On a risk-adjusted basis, you could say it made sense. Um, they weren't blind to those risks. However, as returns have normalized, that operational risk um, still exists at a high level. And so, you know, if you, if you kind of did a, a proxy sharp ratio where you actually included this risk in your returns, your returns are being massively um, hit pretty hard, kind of because operational risk has stayed the same, but returns have um, de decreased. Also, what we're trying to do is bring in groups that have so far sat on the sidelines. So these are big institutions, um, big groups that have looked at digital assets, are interested in digital assets, but have so far sat on the sidelines because of this kind of headline risk that you alluded to. All right, guys, for a quick break, I just wanted to ask John from Saluna, uh, CEO, a quick question. Um, so you guys are building a vertically integrated blockchain computing company. What exactly is that? So vertical integration is an, a real innovation we're bringing to the blockchain community. What we're going to do is essentially, for the first time, combine renewable energy we develop with advanced computing technology, specifically focused on blockchain computing. Vertical integration is essentially uh, creating a balanced system that generates green power and consumes it on site through this approach. And the, the advantage of that is we can provide that computing power to whatever is be beneficial uh, to the blockchain community. We can power crypto mining, uh, advanced distributed uh, uh, graphics uh, rendering networks, uh, file storage networks, uh, AI networks. All the blockchain breakthroughs that are taking place in the space can now be powered by this utility scale site that we'll be creating. So I recently wrote a uh, post about those with the cheapest energy will be king in the future. Agree or disagree? Agree, Anthony. I think that uh, uh, cheap energy is going to be the new innovation. Uh, in fact, I'd, I would go as far as to say it's the next frontier in the blockchain revolution. Satoshi Nakamoto created a network effect that really focused uh, a lot of uh, energy around uh, innovation. We've seen in innovation on chip technology. We've seen innovation around creating new blockchain networks. Uh, we've also seen uh, innovation around creating uh, technology specifically designed for uh, blockchain computing. What we're starting to see is really a plateauing of those innovations. Uh, and now uh, there's a new focus on how can we use energy to really power the next set of breakthroughs uh, on the blockchain. And what we're going to do is essentially start right there with the energy innovation. We will start by developing uh, renewable power and connecting that renewable power to uh, blockchain computing. And uh, our cost of power will be among the lowest uh, in the world. In fact, we expect our levelized cost of power unsubsidized to be well below three cents per kilowatt, which is about average for blockchain computing companies around the world. And we think by having the cheapest power, it allows us to bring our computing capability to a host of different networks around the world at utility scale. Great, thanks, John. All right, now let's get back to the podcast. 
one of the things you do that I think is really interesting, right, is um, that, that, well, so the headline risk is uh, there's a high percentage of crypto media mm-hmm. that is focused on this, right? Whether it's the Wall Street Journal report about money laundering, whether it's, you know, manipulation, wash trading, all this stuff. And so if we can get away from that, hopefully we can focus on the projects being built. But you guys ban trading of digital assets for your employees, right? And, yes. and so why do you do that? How do you enforce that? And what's people's reactions when, when you tell them that's part of the job? Yeah, I mean, obviously we're all big, um, you know, we're, we're all bullish on the asset class as a, as a whole, right? We, 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 we're real enthusiasts, um, especially some of our developers who've been very, very early um, on this. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mindset that, um, we want to be completely impartial and to have no conflicts. Um, so it's part of this broader um, conflicts um, question that has been raised increasingly, for example, the New York Attorney General raised some of these points. Um, so the reason we do it is as a company, we do not trade against our own clients, um, mm-hmm. which ov- presents obvious challenges as well, right? Because you have all the data. But it also we ban employee trading um, because um, there's potentially insider information, right? If we're going to enlist token X, um, that token, if we're a reasonably successful exchange, will um, likely have an uptick. And there's been allegations that other exchanges, um, employees have used that inside information for their own benefit. That damages trust in the institution. And so we really want to make sure that that does not occur. Um, in terms of enforcement, um, we all, a lot of our employees, including myself, hold digital assets. Um, and when you join the company, we say, look, we have this no trade policy. Um, that is the default. Um, if you need to, um, if you, if you need to um, trade digital assets, um, you can present it to, to, to a committee within the company. Um, and we will make a determination whether there is potential insider um, risk. And essentially, the determination we're making there is if this trade were public, um, would we be? Would there be any sense of reputational um, risk? Could there be any allegations mm-hmm. that there was insider information? So we take that very, very seriously. And that's someone who they hold digital assets, and maybe they want to sell some and buy a house. Yes, right, it, or whatever, it, exactly. Yeah. It's those kind of it's those kinds of things. Yeah. And so once we make the determination, we then say, okay, you then have forty eight hours to um, actually execute that trade, and then you have to update your disclosure document. So when an employee joins us. Um, they have a dis- uh, what we call a digital assets um, disclosure form. Um, they give us the amount of digital assets that they hold and, and also where they hold them and the wallet address. Um, and then we periodically review those wallet addresses. It's obviously more difficult in omnibus wallets if they hold it on an exchange. It's much easier um, if they hold them themselves. And what you're looking for is to make sure that they haven't conducted trades or transactions that you're unaware of. Yes. So obviously, there's, there's still a degree of trust in our employees. Um, these, are, these are standards that have been taken. For example, broker dealers put these kind of restrictions on some of their employees mm-hmm. for um, trading. Banks do the same. Um, so obviously, there's a degree of trust. But what we're trying to create a culture of, look, we're an exchange. We're complete, we're, our goal is to be completely independent. We're not meant to have a, a financial stake in the success of one digital asset as a whole. Yep. Our goal is we're, we're bullish on the digital asset space as a whole. But our our sense of um, we don't we're not here to pick the winners and losers. We're also not here to make money on particular winners and losers. We're here to t- basically take position ourselves for a rising tide um, that 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 is occurring, and to be completely impartial in every decision um, that that we take. 
Absolutely. No, it makes, uh, makes complete sense. What, what is the biggest mistake that you see um, other exchanges making, whether it's in the digital asset space or, or other kind of emerging markets? Is it around the manipulation and, and kind of the lack of, um, you know, control? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we kind of maybe more kind of more, more focused on kind of where we see real, real positive differentiation. One is around the compliance piece, right? I mean, we're now regulated by close to 30 different regulatory um, entities, um, being very responsive to these regulators, building strong, sh- strong relationships, strong rapport. Um, you know, we, we take that really seriously. Um, building institutional technology, so um, low latency, high throughput, um, resiliency, so actually having um, very strong failovers. Um, these are kind of areas that have been flagged um, in other ex- exchanges um, that, that don't, don't quite exist um, or, or to the degree that people want. We're also very focused on market structure, right, and institutional exchanges. And so what we're really keen on doing is our market structure reflecting this institutional market. So, for example, our minimum um, order is one Bitcoin, for example, in the mm-hmm. Bitcoin market. We have um, relatively high tick sizes um, of $5 tick sizes for Bitcoin, for example. Um, and so what that does is it's not only the technology being really robust, the compliance piece being really robust, operational support being exceptionally solid, but also a market that has been built and created for institutional platforms. And so what you're doing is rather than there being and diving into a little bit more about this market structure point, if you look, look at a lot of exchanges and you do any kind of market analysis, um, the, the spreads look pretty tight. But if you want to trade, say, five Bitcoin, which is not a, not a huge amount for these kind of institutions, um, you actually clear a huge amount of the, of, of, of the order book. Um, and, and so let, let's uh, make sure people understand. Yeah. So tick size? Yeah, ba- ba- basically, um, <coughs> but basically that tick size is the, the minimum increments um, of, of, of that um, uh, Got contract. it. So if, so if I want to buy at $6,500, the yep. next size up that I can order at is $6,505. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And when you say clear the order book? Yeah, clear the order, but basically means um, say I have one order at X, um, one order at X plus five, um, and I want to trade two, I will have cleared those two prices. Got it. So uh, there's an order in the order book that says uh, somebody's willing to buy Bitcoin at $5,000. Order two says somebody's willing to buy Bitcoin at $5,050. You want to sell two Bitcoin. When you go to sell those two Bitcoin, it basically fills those two orders, and, yeah. and that's the clearing of the order. Yeah, the priority of matching is really price and time. So it yep. will fill at the price. Um, so um, it will fill at the best price. But you look at this order book, and you say, "Hey, this looks like a super tight spread." Um, but actually, if you want to do any size, um, you're going to probably end up with a, t- a ton of tiny fills um, at an aggregate price. And we know how difficult tax returns can be mm-hmm. on digital assets. All of a sudden, one trade turns into say a hundred different tiny little trades, you have to account for that. Absolutely. Um, so th- th- those are kind of some of the, the, the benefits. Got it. Okay. Um, so that all makes sense. Uh, and then let's do a rapid fire, right? So before I end, I always ask a bunch of questions at the end. Okay. Um, what is the most important company in crypto other than your own? Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I probably don't want to say a, a different project. Um, well, a project because it kind of we want to be seen as impartial. Everything that I that I've said, I think you know some of the, some of the other exchanges have done some really good things. Um, um, that they've pushed things forward. They've um, so I, I think, for example, um, 
Gemini's done some interesting things. Um, they've, they've worked very closely um, with trying to kind of, they, they've seeded some of this derivatives conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they take compliance pretty seriously. Um, and, and I think they've done some, some, some good things. Got it. And then what do you believe in crypto that you think a high percentage of other people would disagree with you with? Um, yeah, so I mean, like if you if you stood up right now <laughs> and you know you tweeted something that uh, that you believed and people would freak out. Yeah, fortunately I don't have have Twitter. I think uh, a, a lot of people should probably. Are you not? You're not on Twitter. Personally, I'm not on Twitter. Oh the company, the, co- the, com- the company is. Um, but Why are you not on Twitter? That might be the most controversial thing anyone's yeah, ever said. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's it. Um, look, I, I don't know if, if I have enough interesting things to say. Plus, if you look at some of the some of the some of the recent tweets by some some people, it's probably best to not 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 actually have Twitter in certain cases, right? But um, in terms of unless you have twenty million dollars, and then you're uh, then you're good if you're Elon Musk. You tweet yeah, and, you and probably have great <laughs> DNO insurance as well. Um, the in, in term, I mean, the reality is, is that this is a, an emergent asset class, and I don't know if this is novel or new, but the reality is, is that the that the mo, mo, most things will not exist in ten years' time, mm-hmm. um, but the overall asset class, I believe, will be much, much bigger. Um, I, I don't know if that's the predominant view now, um, but that's probably something. I mean, there's a lot of if you talk to individual projects, maybe they, they take a slightly different, more bullish view, but I'm bullish on the overall asset class. Um, you just think a lot of the earlier projects are going to die? Um, I think that there'll be a lot of, I think there'll be a lot of change. That may be new projects, or it may be that the projects actually change, right? So we've obviously, we've seen, for example, hard forks, soft forks, and these kinds of things. It's just um, an involved asset class um, the corn that we trade today is not the tr- corn that we traded 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. It fundamentally is not. There's different specifications. And so that's why I compare it to kind of hard forks and soft forks. So, but rather than it being 50-year timeline between any kind of material change, it's like a five-year or even a five-month timeline that we're seeing. So everything's way more condensed. Yeah, absolutely. Crypto time is, uh, is pretty crazy. Yeah, I, li- I like that one. Um, <laughs> all right. And, and so uh, if you could ha- take a magic wand, wave it, and change any one regulation, what would it be? Um, Regulation-wise, I, I think... Or uh, improve. You don't yeah, have to change I, I, it. You can just no, improve. I, I, so my, my view, is, um, my view is, is that we should not have um, digital asset-specific regulation. Okay. Um, I feel that pretty strongly. Um, digital assets is such a broad term, but um, they are either securities or they are commodities. What um, do you think they are? Well, I, I think they're both. I okay. think it depends on the the, the, the actual um, asset that you're looking at. Yep. Um, but this isn't th- these kind of novel products. Yes, they're really really cool, um, but there have been a ton of other really really cool products that has been created um, that are defined as a commodity. So, so the regulation is if if it, everything by default is a commodity unless it is proved to be a uh, security um, under the Howey test, and things like movie theater receipts have been deemed a commodity. Um, so. We didn't say, hey, we need to just create specific regulation for this one thing. Um, Could you imagine if there was an exchange for movie tickets? They, they, they tried. Um, actually, there's, there's, uh, there's three products that are enumerated as being illegal, one of which is actually movie theater receipts. Really? Yeah. The other is assassination contracts, and the third is onions. 
Um, those are products that are illegal to create derivative contracts on. So they actually whoa, tried. Whoa, whoa, back up. Hold on, hold on. So okay, assassination, assassination contracts are pretty uh, obvious. Yeah. Uh, although Augur, I think, is uh, they had one or two on there, and, and that got a bunch of bad press. But why movie ticket receipts? Um, so it wasn't too long ago. I think it was about 2008, 2009. Um, it, it was actually incorporated, I think, into Dodd-Frank. Um, it's the lobby, lobbying group, basically. Um, by, by, by having forward-dated contracts, you can have insights into um, what, is, what the market perceives will be the likely output. Um, so you could say, hey, we're going to trade a forward-dated contract on movie Y, and if it doesn't perform, we can probably predict that that, pro- pro- that movie isn't going to perform very well. So because derivative of the receipts. But yeah, because you're basically taking a future position on the, on the receipts that will be collected. And so you're getting this kind of forward-dated market view of how the market believes that you will um, perform. And if you're a believer in efficient markets, it will be an accurate but prediction. But isn't, isn't that true? And, and I, I don't understand this well enough to, to kind of you know, debate the nuances. So, so this is more a question. Um, couldn't I say the same thing about Walmart? like Walmart stock and say, oh, I can't buy a future on Walmart because I can go and collect all the Walmart receipts? Um, so, you, so, but basically, um, so the receipts have been, it's been like the future revenue of that, of that movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we get insights into all sorts of things with, mm-hmm. with derivative markets. It is just that the movie lobbyists obviously uh, did what they thought was best for their, for their constituents. Um, and then if you actually follow it, um, some of the senators that actually pushed that forward uh, then went on to take nice jobs uh, in the movie theater industry. Um, so you can make of that what you will. The movie uh, theater lobbyists sound like badasses. <laughs> yeah, I mean they got uh, one of three. So um, and and onions is like 1958. There was like a squeeze, and then um, they were like the onion lobbyists then said we're going to ban this. Um, so you can kind of see these weird rules have occurred. So probably if I had to change those regulations, I would probably, because uh, they're just quirks, I, I agree with the assassination one, but movie theaters, receipts, and yeah, was, um, onions I, lift those bans. I, I was uh, I was scared of the assassination markets. I might be more scared of the onion lobbyists than the movie theater yeah, lobbyists. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> all right. Got a lot of sway. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, so uh, one non-crypto question. Um, we just have to admit that aliens exist all right do you think that they have pets and what we mean is do you think there are alien animals and alien humans or do you think that there's just one type of alien creature and and there's no delineation between uh, the animals and the humans i I think if if aliens exist if uh, you don't believe well i'm just saying it okay Aliens, if there are aliens, if there are, if there, if there are aliens, right. there will be. I, I, I think it's a natural um, kind of corollary of that that there will be other um, alien-like creatures, and by alien meaning that we don't have them on our planet. Yep, and and so then there would be animals or some other form. or some other other form that we have no concept or no word that we can actually describe these as, but they will be. Um, that, that I believe that there will be multiple different forms of aliens if aliens exist I, I just always think of you know they get here they step off the spaceship and do they have dogs or not right? <laughs> like <laughs> like what, 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 what keeps you up at night what, right yeah. digital asset prices <laughs> and that question <laughs> so some people people have actually uh, tweeted at me and tried to tell me what the answers are and they've got all kinds of weird things they're finding um, but but it's awesome uh, all right so uh, before I end each one I let uh, the guests ask me one question um, so any question uh, you've got for me 
Yeah, what are you most excited about in the digital asset space? Ooh, what am I most excited you about? You see a lot of things. I, um, yeah, so uh, this is probably not the answer people would expect from me. Uh, Even better. I'm actually really excited about uh, what I call like the aha moment mm -hmm. for large capital allocators. Mm -hmm. So we're spending too much time, frankly, banging on doors and, and you know, hanging out with uh, people who are managing, you know, tens of billions, hundred billion plus, you know, dollars. Uh, they are, you know, some of the most sophisticated kind mm -hmm. of institutional investors in the world. Um, and six months ago, it was, uh, oh, that's cute. I've heard about Bitcoin. That's what all the criminals use. And I didn't even realize there was any other digital asset, you know, ecosystem mm -hmm. to now. I think there's awareness. Um, there's more acceptance of Bitcoin itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a couple who have said, I actually think this is like a legitimate asset class and here's some money. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're going to get over the next 12 months, uh, like much more of that, yeah. right, uh, coming into the industry. The most exciting point mm -hmm. throughout that entire, you know, kind of education, conversation and decision uh, making mm -hmm. Is the second you see, you know, usually a middle-aged or older CIO with, you know, decades of experience, like flip over and they realize, oh, the code is actually more trustworthy than the humans or, oh, a deflationary system versus an inflationary or um, a decentralized system versus a centralized system or a global world versus a Western centric world. Like there's a couple of these like, you know, like flip points mm -hmm. where when that mind turns over and they realize the potential or power of this stuff, it, there's down the rabbit hole. We'll never get them back. Right. And yep. so I think that that's, um, I've seen it a couple of times now and, uh, they go from being the biggest detractors to like the biggest <laughs> supporters pretty yep. quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so I think that's the, that's the thing that just, you know, actually gets me excited every day right now. That's great. I mean, I, I agree with that. I think there's also going to be kind of an inflection point when there's enough of those aha moments, um, groups that haven't necessarily had that aha moment are going to worry that um, if because if if this is a huge asset class which which I believe everyone in this room believes if you are not allocating any capital in that space because returns are not kind of a normal return if this is a disproportionate amount of returns digital assets as an asset class over the next ten years if you're not in digital assets you will no longer essentially be relevant in ten years time because you won't have had those returns and so what I'm starting to see in both the VC world and kind of the kind of more institutional world is they maybe haven't had this aha moment, but they do get the point that enough people have had this aha moment that there's enough capital now being deployed in this space that if there are, you know, two, you know, pretty high returns on this space, then they will be left behind and their returns compared to everybody else will be massively uh, reduced. So I, I agree with that. Absolutely. It's, um, you know, every asset's going to get tokenized or digitized. And uh, we just tell the institutions, look, you have to get off zero. I can't tell you what, what your exact <laughs> exposure is, right? But zero is the wrong number. And so yeah. you, you got to get off zero. Mm -hmm. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming. This is, this is tons of fun. I think uh, people will learn a lot from this one. So I uh, appreciate you coming in. All right, thanks for having me. Cheers. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. We're back with the CEO of Saluna, John Belzier. John, what are you most excited about right now? What excites me the most is that we're really in the midst of a revolution. Satoshi Nakamoto's paper that came out eight years ago really launched a revolution globally. And the blockchain is definitely here to stay. Today's blockchains are predominantly seen as the core technology for cryptocurrencies, among other things. But in the future, blockchains will do more. 
they'll be the foundation for entire new ecosystems. They will revolutionize a host of different industries around the world. And taken as a whole, these new distributed applications will form a new kind of internet, uh, one where protocols replace companies and algorithms choose the best uh, computing backend and solutions that they can find. This new ecosystem, this new internet, if you will, will need dedicated infrastructure to power it. And what excites me is that Saluna aims to be the key part of this infrastructure. We have the opportunity to build the next great infrastructure company to power this revolution. Thank you for taking the time. If you'd like to learn more about Saluna, please visit saluna.io. Hey everyone, Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.